Turn to Judges chapter 14. Last week in Judges 13, we discovered circumstances surrounding the supernatural birth of Samson. It was anything but normal, as we saw. Uh, the angel of the Lord visited Manoah's wife. Uh, he plainly told her the child to be born to her would be a Nazarite, to be separated unto God for the duration of his life. His mission was to deliver Israel from the Philistine domination. Samson started with all kinds of spiritual advantages, as we saw last week. Like, as I said, he was separated unto God from his birth. He had parents that seemed to be godly. Verse 24 of chapter 13 says, The Lord blessed the child as he grew up. <clears throat> and if that wasn't enough, the Spirit of the Lord in the final verse begins to stir him. He begins to work and do a work in him, or with him at least. And the Lord is clearly in back of this next judge of Israel. And I asked last week, with such circumstances, what could possibly go wrong, right? The only thing that could go wrong is with the man himself. If he doesn't cooperate with the Lord, if he doesn't comply with the Lord's wishes, then it can all go wrong. Tonight we're going to observe the events surrounding the marriage of Samson in chapter 14. And we're going to see how he responds to the Lord's agenda for his life. First of all, in the first four verses, we'll look at Samson and the woman of Timnah. Samson and the woman of Timnah. Verse, chapter 14, verse 1 says, Then Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. So he came back and told his father and mother, I saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. Now therefore, get her for me as, wife, as a wife. Then his father and his mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you would go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she looks good to me. However, his father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord, for he was seeking an occasion against the Philistines. Now at that time, the Philistines were ruling over Israel. You can see in uh, chapter 13, verse 25, Samson grows up in an area called Mahanadan, an area between Zorah and Eshtaol. This city, Timnah, is about four to six miles west of that in Philistine territory, not in Israeli territory, right on the border between the Philistine and Israeli territory. It's a Philistine town. And it says in verse 1 that Samson went down to Timnah. He went down to Timnah because he lived in a hilly area, and he had to go downhill to get to the coastal area because Philistines live near the Mediterranean Sea. He had to go downhill to get to the coastal area of Timnah. And so he did that. And in verse 2, when it says he came back, it really means he, went, he came up, he went up, he had to climb up the hills again to get back to his home. So the, the words coming down, going up, reflect the topography involved in the, in the traveling of Samson. But when he arrived in, in Timnah, something caught his attention in a major way, or someone, I should say, and that someone was a Philistine woman. She caught his attention. He goes back home and he tells his parents, you know, I, about this woman, and he says, he demands that she be the one that he marries. He wants them to get her uh, for him as his wife. Now, as you look at those verses, there's several problems with this whole scenario so far. We haven't gone very far in the story, and we've got several problems cropping up. Problem number one, what was Samson's mission? His mission was to deliver Israel from the Philistines, not to marry one of the Philistines. That's a problem. Didn't the angel of God, of the Lord, predict in, in chapter 13, verse 5, that he would begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines? That was his mission. But here he is falling for a Philistine woman. 
And at this point, it looks like Samson's the one that needs deliverance from the Philistines. At least from the Philistine woman he's met. And not the other way around. Now, it could be he was traveling down to Timnah to carry out his mission, but he was sidetracked by the woman. Did he forget that this was the, the enemy? He's in enemy, ter- enemy territory, and he's encountering an enemy, and, he's, and, he, and he wants this woman. You know, sometimes we let our fleshly appetites get in the way. We're trying to, and we, we do exactly the opposite of what we started out to do. That was to serve the Lord, right? Something comes along, and we get sidetracked that way. But his mission, for the time being at least, is to marry a Philistine woman, not to deliver Israel from them. There's a problem number two. His whole idea of marriage is all wrong. His potential marriage is based on one thing, what he saw. He saw this woman, and he wants to marry her now. It's apparently, in his mind, at least love at first sight. He wants to marry her. In verse 2, the word emphasized in the original is on the, is on the word woman. Samson literally says this to his parents. He says, a woman I saw in Timnah. The emphasis is on the word woman. I saw a woman in Timnah. This woman has blinded Samson to everything else, including the will of God for him. It's all about her as far as he's concerned. And in verse 3, he gives his reason, reason for wanting to marry her. He says, she looks good to me. That's it. I want to marry her because she looks good to me. That's what he says. Therefore, I must marry her. Obvious logical conclusion. She looks good to me. Therefore, I must marry her, right? Is that how it works? The phrase literally is, she is right in my eyes. And it's translated, she looks good to me. By the way, the word translated, the word good or right here, uh, she's right in my eyes. She looks good to me. That one, that word normally has the connotation of one who is upright or one who is uh, righteous even or right, the word is often used to describe the character of God, that word. God is upright. Or it's used to describe the character of a righteous person. That person is upright. The person is righteous. But Samson doesn't mean the word that way. He's not saying, this Philistine woman is upright. I want to marry her because of that. No, he's saying, using it in a different way, he's saying, no, she's attractive. She is desirable to me. Therefore, I want to marry her. Now, let me ask you this. Was it wrong for Samson to be attracted to the opposite sex? Was that wrong? Was that a sin? That's not a sin. That's normal. That's natural. Although in our society, it's becoming less normal. But that's, that's normal and natural. God's, God made them male and female, right? But his problem was not an att- a normal attraction to the opposite sex. His problem was lust. He's willing and ready to marry this woman at the drop of a hat because of one reason. She looks good to him. He likes the way she looks. Lust can be the gateway to destruction for men. Whether you see someone in public, or whether it's through viewing pornography, or whether it's just entertaining evil thoughts. It can be the gateway to destruction, as it appears to be to Samson at this point. Jesus said in Matthew 5.27, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So as far as Jesus is concerned, this is a serious sin issue, this idea, business of lusting. He goes on, by the way, in the same chapter to describe how to deal with that, with lust or with sin in general for that matter. <clears throat> Matthew 5, 29, he says, If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. It's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off, throw it from you. 
For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your, your whole body to go into hell. And that's pretty tough language, isn't it, as you read those words? You know, or it was said of Origen, the church father in the third century, um, that he made himself a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom of God. He did that. And now I'm not advocating, I'm not advising that policy, by the way. But he, he, he took that route. Jesus is not advocating the idea either because lust is a problem of the heart. It's a problem of the heart. <clears throat> Becoming a eunuch does not solve the problem of the heart. And I think Jesus is saying that sin in general, lust in particular, must be dealt with uh, ruthlessly. It must be dealt with drastically. Uh, you must uh, not be allowed to persist in it. It must be put to death. So men in particular, we're to guard our hearts and our minds against us. The breeding ground for lust is in the mind. But Samson is controlled by what he sees. He sees this woman. He's controlled by that. And how she looks to Samson is what's important. It's obvious that Samson has no understanding of what marriage is all about. You know, I hope that no single person here, we have single per- people here tonight, we have a lot more single people in the church, but I hope no one here is going to follow Samson's method for finding a wife. It's not exactly God's method. Samson should have been thinking of marrying someone committed to the Lord, shouldn't he have? Should have been based on more than just looks alone as well. Proverbs 31.30 says, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she's the one to be praised. So guys, my advice to you, who do you look for in a wife? You look for the Proverbs 31 woman and nothing less than that. But at the same time, that means you guys have to have your act together too can't say, hey, that woman's got to be right, and you, then you're, you're all backwards. It can't be that way either. There's a third problem here. Samson's demand for a wife was against the tradition in which, of that day in which marriages were arranged by the parents. It was the father who normally decided who his son would marry. Abraham did that in Genesis 4, uh, 24. He told his servant, go, find, go back to my relatives and find a wife for my son Isaac. Genesis 38, Judah takes a wife for his firstborn son, Ur. Doesn't give him much of a name, but he takes a wife for him. But Samson's method is a slap in the face to the social customs of his day. And furthermore, his demanding a wife, see where he says he demands for a wife? It's not exactly a way to show respect to the parents. Look in verse 2, it says, Now therefore, get her for me as a wife. That's not a suggestion on Samson's part. Please, Father, I beg of you, I beg of thee, can you get me her as well? No, he doesn't do that. He says, get her for me as a wife. It's a command. It's an imperative. <clears throat> it's a command to his parents, of all things. At the end of verse 3, uh, he says, uh, this time Samson speaking directly to his father, he says, but Samson said to his father, get her for me. That's a command as well. Twice he commands his parents, commands his father in particular the second time around the one who should have arranged the marriage. Since when in the Old Testament does the son start giving commands to the father? It's not how it was supposed to work. It's a far cry from the verse, honor your father and your mother, right? So Samson is showing a complete disregard for his parents' authority. He wants what he wants. He wants it now, and that's the way it's going to be. Problem number four with this passage so far, marriages with unbelieving pagan pagan people outside of Israel were prohibited. We're supposed to marry other people like that from pagan uh, backgrounds. And his parents, dis, they expressed their dismay over this in verse 3. 
And they say, is there no woman, no woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines, that derogatory term they call them? There's no woman. Really, Samson, you can't find a woman at all in Israel? You have to go down to Timna, across the border to this border town and find this Philistine woman? Is that how it is? <clears throat> you know, you remember uh, Esau, when he married the Hittite women in Genesis it says that these women were a grief of mine to Isaac and Rebekah. They just loathed the fact that he had married these God-forsaken women, Hittite women that didn't know the Lord. The Lord forbade his people to marry outside of the covenant people of Israel. Lest why? So they wouldn't be influenced by idols, for one thing, by the gods of the peoples. And they practiced circumcision as a sign of the covenant. And so how could Samson entertain the thought of entering into a marriage contract with people who are outside the covenant of Israel, the covenant between God and Israel. How could he even consider this? Again, single people, considering marriage in the, now or in the future. Only marry believers. Only marry believers, number one. Number two, only marry a growing believer in the Lord, number two. Paul said in, in 2 Corinthians, what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? There's no common ground between believers and unbelievers. Only if both of you are in Christ will you have God's approval on the marriage. Problem number five, Samson's actions break the spirit of his status as a Nazarite. He's a Nazarite. Doesn't all this kind of break the spirit of that? Judges 13.5 says he's, he's going to be a Nazarite to God. That's one who's consecrated to God. But yet here he is disrespecting his parents, seeking to marry a Philistine. That exactly doesn't seem to be a consecrated life so far. In this, in this chapter, he seems to be guided solely by what he sees, by his feelings, by his self-will. And something is just terribly wrong here at this point. But then a strange twist takes place in this account. Very strange. You know, if the unit of thought had ended in verse 3, then we'd be just talking only about the stubbornness of Samson. But now we have what we might consider a real conundrum on our hands. Maybe it's a theological problem for us to wrestle with. Maybe systematic theology, they can talk about it next week. And that's verse 4. Verse 4, however, his father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord. For he was seeking an occasion against the Philistines. Now, at that time, the Philistines were ruling over Israel. Does that raise questions in anybody's mind? His father and mother did not know that all this was of the Lord? How could this situation be of the Lord? How is it possible? How is it possible? Does it mean that the Lord was endorsing? All these actions of Samson. Is that what it means? Backing the evil that he did? Well, let's think about it for a minute. First of all, this asks the question in verse 4. Who is, who is he in verse 4? It says, they did not know that it was of the Lord, for he was seeking an occasion against the Philistines. Is that Samson? Something some it's Samson, he. Not Samson. It's the, it's, it's, it's the Lord. The nearest antecedent to the word Lord is, is and so it's the Lord. It's not Samson who's seeking an occasion against the Philistines. And, and as you read this, you see that's truer as you get through the chapter. It's the Lord that's seeking an occasion against the Philistines. The Lord's behind all this. He's the one. He's seeking an opportunity, it says, literally a quarrel. The Lord wants to start a quarrel with the Philistines. Now, why would the Lord do that? Didn't he say the spirit of the Lord, the servant of the Lord is not to quarrel? Be quarrelsome in 2 Timothy? Well, his reason was, this is why he raised up Samson in the first place, to deliver them from the Philistines. So naturally... He wants to start doing that. Samson's not doing it. He's trying to marry a Philistine. 
Verse 4 says, now the Philistines were ruling over Israel. Here's the problem with all this. Israel had accepted the status quo at this time. The Philistines were in charge, and the Israelites realized it, and they accepted it. That's the way it was. Why would this marriage between an Israelite and a Philistine be acceptable to anybody? As you read chapter 14, nobody objects to that at all. There doesn't seem to be an issue with it at all. Israel had gotten used to being dominated by the Philistines. They were used to being mastered by them, and they accepted it. And so the Lord shakes them up. No one plans on disturbing the status quo, not even Samson, but the Lord comes in and, and takes the initiative to do this. You know, Satan works this way. He wants nothing more to, than to lull us to sleep, right? So that we'll accept things just as they are, accept the status quo as it is. Here's Satan on a rampage against the Lord and against his people. He's going after them. If he can distract the people of God from doing the work of God, he will do that. He hates the work of the Lord. He hates local churches. He hates when the Bible is preached. He hates all of these things. And all the while, we sit back and allow disobedience of all kinds in our lives to exist. And we accept the status quo. Yeah, we've grown comfortable with it. We have no, business, no plans of changing anything at all. But sometimes the Lord has to shake us up. He shakes us up. Let me ask you something. Have you accepted the status quo tonight? Are you content with the status quo in your life, in our church? Is it business as usual for you, just another Sunday? Are you content with your own spiritual life? Are you content with the spiritual life presently of our church? Let Judges 14.4 be a, a wake-up call tonight. It's time to quit doing our own thing and start getting in on what the Lord is doing. The Lord said to the church in Sardis in Revelation 3.2, Wake up and strengthen the things that remain which are about to die. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. So how is it that Samson is doing whatever he pleases, and yet this is of the Lord? Well, the Lord simply uses the circumstances to accomplish his purposes. He always does this. He is a providential God. His providence, by the way, is what the Samson's parents could not see. They couldn't see all that. They were ignorant of the providence of God. They, didn't understand. they were, obviously weren't Calvinists, right? They were ignorant of God's providence. They couldn't see it. But the Lord is able to work through any circumstance to accomplish what he desires. He can even take the sinful actions of people and use them for his glory. Now, without endorsing sin, of course. Now, I know you remember the story of Joseph, how Joseph was his brothers, you know, abandoned him into a pit. And yet, through all these interesting circumstances in Genesis, you see he's able to come into Egypt and save Egypt from a famine that exists. And some people will say, well... You're all lucky that that happened, but it's not luck. It's God's providence working. And Joseph was not ignorant of the providence of God. He, was, he fully understood what was going on. His testimony to God's providence is, is in Genesis 50, 20. It says, speaking to his brothers, he says, uh, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. So God worked those events out in Joseph's life to bring about his purposes, even the evil actions of men using that to accomplish his purposes. Same is true of Christ's death. Acts 2 says, godless men. In Peter's sermon, he says, you put through godless men, you put Christ to death. However, he says, that was the predetermined plan of God at the same time. So God uses all events for his purposes without endorsing evil. 
Samson's actions are included in the providence of God. Now, it's hard for us to understand that. We can't really understand it. I, I can't understand it, at least. Maybe you do. I don't. But we don't have to be ignorant of the, pro, of the doctrine of the providence of God because it's there. Well, let's move on from the Samson and the woman of Timnah to Samson and the lion, verses uh, 5 through 9. Samson and the lion. Not Samson, not, not Samson in the lion's den, but Samson and the lion, right? Verses 5 through 9, it says, Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother and came as far as the vineyards of Timnah. Behold, a young lion came roaring toward him. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily so that he tore him as one tears a young goat, though he had nothing in his hand. But he did not tell his father or mother what he had done. So he went down and talked to the woman, and she looked good to Samson. When he returned later to take her, he turned aside to look at the carcass of the lion. Behold, a swarm of bees and honey were in the body of the lion. So he scraped the honey into his hands and went on eating as he went. When he came to his father and mother, he gave some to them and they ate it, but he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey out of the body of the lion. Samson apparently is making, he's making another trip down to Timnah. This time his parents are with him. Apparently they had acquiesced to his demands to get a, this woman to be his wife, and, and they travel with him. Now somebody, the question arises, why was he in a vineyard? It says he was in a vineyard. We know he was forbidding, forbidden to eat the fruit of the vineyard, and I don't think it has any real significance at all other than I think that the vineyard was something they had to cross through to get to the town probably, I'm guessing, just a geographical necessity. But the vineyard was dangerous that day. Verse 5 says, Behold, a young lion came roaring toward him. The word behold expresses us that a surprise is about to take place. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, this lion appears and he roars at Samson. Can you imagine being in that situation? Face to face with a lion. I think David Livingston encountered a lion in Africa. I think it ripped his uh, uh, arm off, if I'm not mistaken, when he was uh, a missionary to Africa. Anyway, can you imagine being in that situation? But his life now is in great danger. And no doubt he's going to be killed very soon, except another supernatural event takes place in his life. Verse 6, it says, The Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily. Actually, the word came, and Nasby is, should be the word rushed. It rushed upon him mightily. It's a strong and forceful word. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him mightily. It is said in Judges that the Spirit of the Lord came upon other judges like Othniel and Jephthah. It's said of Gideon that the, the Spirit clothed him in Judges 6. But here, in two other cases... Two other times in this, in this section, the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon Samson. So God is really working with him. And what happens? The lion is torn apart by Samson. This vicious, wild lion might as well have been a young goat. So easily did Samson rip it, literally maybe in two even. And he did it with his bare hands. Now let me ask you a question. No weapons at all. He did it with his bare hands. You remember the other instances in Judges where... Guys had, like, uh, Shamgar had, what, the ox code used to kill people and other things of that nature. Uh, What's-her-name had the uh, other implement? Yeah. <laughs> Omar, <laughs> good description, Omar. <laughs> we need to be on video for that one, though. But he does this with his bare hands. Now, was Samson able to do this because he was super strong like Arnold Schwarzenegger was in his prime? Is that why? I think Joe last week asked me, uh, he said, are we going to study the muscle man next? Another great theological point from Joe here. He said, are we going to study the muscle man next? Now, most people think of Samson that way, the muscle man, right? The guy that's like Hercules, 
the guy possessed of incredible strength. I read one guy that says he had an abnormal physique. He said in the commentary that the Philistines apparently had gotten used to his abnormal physique. What is he, like, like a monster or something? I mean, but I, I don't, I, I, maybe I'm wrong. I don't think I ever see that in, this, in, the, in the story at all, that he's some humongous guy like Arnold Schwarzenegger. I don't see that. I think, I'll be honest with you, I think that he was just a normal-looking guy, relatively normal. I'm not saying he was a 90-pound weakling, on the other hand. I think he was just a normal-looking guy, and I think the only thing that stood, about, stood out about him was his hair. Talks about that a lot. His hair was long. I think that was unusual. But it wasn't because of Samson's natural physical strength that he was able to kill this lion. That's not what it says. It was because the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. It's because the Spirit of the Lord is powerful and enabled this man to kill. How powerful is the Spirit of the Lord? How powerful is he? I thought about this this week. I never think about this question. How powerful is the Spirit of the Lord? He's powerful enough to enable a man to kill a lion with his bare hands. That's how powerful. That's amazing. And that's what happened here. The power of the Lord is infinite. His power is without limit. And this is a preview of things to come. The Lord is showing Samson, look, it's me, not you. It's my strength, not yours. That's that, that, that what this is all about. It's about the Lord. It's the Lord, not Samson. You see it all over the scripture. You see in Acts 2 where the Spirit of the Lord filled those apostles and they preached the gospel and 3,000 people were saved. You think that was because they were great, uh, they were great preachers and they were smooth talkers and they were able to convince people like, uh, what's his name, said back in the day that you, you talk people into salvation. I can't remember the guy's name now. You basically try to talk people into salvation. That's not how it was. They preached the word because the Spirit of God was behind them and 3,000 people were saved by the Spirit of the Lord. It's like in Acts 8 where Philip, the Ethiopian, Philip rather, is directed to go by the Spirit to the Ethiopian eunuch and that man is converted. And, and so it's the power of the Spirit. But Samson doesn't tell his parents about this incident. By the way, you might wonder... What, what, what happened to his parents? Weren't they with him? It says they were with him, and then it says he didn't tell his parents about this. <laughs> what happened to them? <laughs> Did they stop to take a break under a shade tree somewhere? I'm thinking of Haiti now, where it's hot, and you uh, every once in a while take a break under the shade tree. Is that what they did? Somewhere along the way, there's a separation. Is Samson exercising his independence again from them? I don't know. Matthew Henry suggested that possibly... Samson rambled off into the vineyard to eat grapes while his parents kept on the high road, on the main road. And I, don't, I think number six says that Nazarites were supposed to eat grapes, though. <laughs> the only problem with that idea. But whatever the reason was, his parents were not there. Some separation took place for some reason. They weren't there when, and I've got some other thoughts about this, but there's a lot of things you can speculate about. They weren't there when, it, when Samson killed the lion, and Samson does not bother to tell them about the incident. Well, in verse 7, oh, here's a verse for Samson. He actually talks to the woman. So far, he's just looked at her. Now he's talking to her. They're, they're making progress in their relationship. Some of you can learn from this. And it says in verse 7 again, she looked good to Samson. In other words, same phrase, she was right in Samson's eyes, literally. Again, what his parents thought was totally irrelevant. Apparently, in verse 8, he returns again to Timnah. Uh, through some time lapse. He remembers the lion incident. How could you forget that? He turns aside out of curiosity to see, to see, this, to see what was going on with this dead lion. 
And what he saw, saw was very surprising. Now, what would you expect to see uh, from a dead animal after it had been there some time? Maybe flies and maggots? He doesn't see that. He sees a swarm of bees in there making honey, which is very strange, and there's a lot of speculation as to why this beehive is in this carcass of the lion. The fact is we don't know. How does Samson react to the situation? Verse 9 says, He scraped the honey into his hands and went on, eating as he went. His father, father and mother came. He gave some to them. They ate. Didn't tell him where he got it from. Here's a sequence. Samson go through. He looks... He takes and he eats of it. Does that remind you of another sequence in the Bible? Genesis chapter 3, right? Eve saw the forbidden fruit. She took it and she ate it. And then she gave it to her husband. He ate it also. It's the same, same sequence. And notice that when Samson gets the honey, he's deliberate. He's, not, he's eating it as he's walking along. And he doesn't tell, tell his parents about this either. Now, I think he didn't tell his parents about this because he knows it's wrong. He knew it was wrong. As an Israelite citizen, he was eating food that was unclean, it says in Leviticus 11. You can't do that. And I definitely think he fouled, fouled up there. And as a, as a Nazarite, he had gone back and touched the carcass of something that was dead. Now, in, in number six, it says a Nazarite couldn't touch the carcass of a dead person. And some would say, well, it doesn't matter if it's a person or an animal. It, literally, the word is soul there. Uh, or usually expressing this living human being, um, they say it doesn't matter, it's a dead carcass regardless. Others say no, it has to be a person, so he didn't break his Nazarite vow. Some think he did, others think he didn't. At any rate, he did eat unclean food. And it's not just a quick bite, he's deliberate, he's calloused in this. He's eating and walking with it as he goes. And so this is a deliberate act of eating unclean food, which he didn't seem to care about you know, God or anything else at the, at the time in this chapter. Furthermore, he gives some to his parents. He doesn't tell them where it came from. He knows good and well they would have disapproved of this. He knows they would have. Because now they are defiled with the unclean food that he is giving them. But they don't even know it. They don't know what happened here. It's another slap in the face to his parents. And just like Eve, he draws them into disobedience as well as she did with Adam. Samson's parents had consecrated him as a child, but now he is desecrating them as an adult. It seems, and by the way, I thought of this too, it seems to me that the bees were a greater danger to Samson than the lion was. The lion could have killed him physically, but the bees seemed to do a better job on him spiritually. You know, sin normally doesn't just affect you or me. I can't just sin and say, well, it's just, it's just private, it's just me, it's not going to hurt anybody, because it almost always affects somebody else. It almost always affects other people. We can even bring people into a, situ a sin sinful situation and deceive them like Samson did and cause them to do wrong. So it's good for us to consider not only how sin affects us, but how it affects other people as well. And then finally, in, ch in verses 10 through 20, Samson's riddle. His riddle. Verses 10 and 11. Then his father went down to the woman, and Samson made a feast there, for the young men customarily did this. When they saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. Now, in verse 10, Samson's father goes down to the wedding to talk to the woman, no doubt finalize whatever wedding arrangements they allow him to finalize. Apparently, Samson was doing most of the uh, work here. Samson observes the custom of the day, which was uh, 
a feast prior to the wedding. The feast would last for seven days, and then the wedding would be consummated. This particular feast was a Philistine custom. He's in Philistine territory. He's with Philistine people. He's observing a Philistine custom. It's a Philistine wedding. And so they bring 30 Philistine companions to be a part of the, the wedding here. And a lot of people debate about who these companions are. Some think they're bodyguards there to, in case Samson gets on the loose. But I don't know if he's very well known at this point, and I'm not sure that's the case at all. At any rate, they're there to be, celebrate the wedding. Now, it's interesting. Samson prepares a feast, but the word feast there has reference to a drinking feast in this context. It largely involves drinking. Now, did Samson drink? I don't know. It doesn't say. But he did arrange for this feast to take place. That would have broken his Nazarite vow, though. Look at verses 12 to 14. Samson said to them, Let me now propound a riddle to you. If you will indeed tell it to me within the seven days of the feast, and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen wraps and 30 changes of clothes. If you are unable to tell me, then you shall give me 30 linen wraps and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, Propound your riddle that we may hear it. So he said to them, here's the riddle, Out of the eater came something to eat, and out of the strong came something sweet. But they could not tell the riddle in three days. Hebrew doesn't rhyme like that, by the way. English does, just to show you that it's a riddle. The reward for this bed is 30 linen wraps, it's undergarments, and 30 outer garments, uh, 30, 30 changes of clothes, which are sets of outer garments. Obviously, he made it this riddle in connection with the lion and the, and the carcass and the, and the honey and all that. And so after three days of trying to figure this out, the Philistines don't have a first clue as to what the answer is. Verse 15, it came about and on the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, notice she's called the wife here, which was back then an engaged wife and a married woman were nearly the same. They looked at it like that. Entice your husband so that he will tell us the riddle, or we will burn you and your father's house with, with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? Is this not so? Samson's wife wept before him and said, You only hate me. You do not love me. You have propounded a riddle to the sons of my people and have not told it to me. And he said to her, Behold, I have not told it to my father or mother. Why should I tell you? However, she kept before, she wept before him rather seven days while their feast lasted. On the seventh day, he told her because she pressed him so hard. She then told the riddle to the sons of her people. So the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey and what is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, If you had not plow with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. So this event takes place. They threaten to burn the woman down with fire and her family if she does not reveal the riddle to them. Same thing that Ephraim did to, uh, they threatened Jephthah with the same, seems to be a common threat in that time, huh? We'll burn your house down with fire, we'll burn you down with fire as well. So she tries to trap Samson into giving her the answer by saying things like, you don't love me, you hate me, why haven't you told me anything? He says, I haven't told my parents, of course, he didn't tell his parents anything anyway, right? He showed disrespect for them most of the time. But now, in, by the way, in verse 16, she calls the Philistines my people, these are my people. That makes the, more, the marriage all the more deplorable. She's a Philistine through and through, she doesn't plan on changing it at all, these are my people here. She always will be, no doubt. But finally, in verse 17, her tears and her constant whining just wear him down. 
and he gives her, he gives in to her, he gives her the answer to the riddle. And I like Samson's comment at the end of verse 18 that some people were smiling at. He says, if you had not plowed my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. Kind of an insult, actually. Samson's wife considered to be a heifer who's been manipulated by the Philistines. Basically an insult. But in the midst of all this craziness, <clears throat> another surprising thing happens. Look at verse 19. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, and he went down to Ashkelon and killed 30 of them, and took their spoil and gave the changes of clothes to those who told the riddle. And his anger burned, and he went up to his father's house. The Spirit of the Lord rushes upon Samson again, same word, rushes upon Samson again, and he travels about 20 miles southwest of Timnah to another city, a, a bigger city, one of the main, five main cities of the Philistines named Ashkelon. And there he kills 30 Philistines with their, and gets their garments and other spoils and carries them back 20 miles to fulfill his bet to give to the 30 companions at the wedding. He lost the bet to them. But notice his attitude at verse 19. It said his anger burned and he went up to his father's house. Verse 20, Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his friend. He is angry as he makes his way back to his hometown after he fulfills the bet. He's angry, filled with anger. He is mad. He is so mad. He's mad at his wife. He's mad at the Philistines. He's mad at the whole world. He's so mad, he doesn't even take his wife with him. It's his wife. Doesn't take, doesn't take him, her with him. Verse 20 says, and you'll see later in chapter 15, Samson's wife was given to one of those 30 companions. Maybe some think the best man even at the wedding. And so Samson gets married, and yet... And he was married, and yet he never spends one day on a honeymoon with his wife. Now, what's happening here? What's happening here? Is this all crazy to you, like it is to me? Samson's totally lost sight of his mission. He's now playing games with the Philistines by making up this riddle to try to deceive them. He shows how immature he is spiritually. He shows how full of self-will he is. He shows how self-serving he is. He's not on the course to do the will of God at all, it doesn't seem like. The spirit, the only thing that's happening good here is the spirit is enabling him to carry out the mission of deliver, beginning to deliver Israel from the Philistines. Samson, the man, though, doesn't seem to be cooperating. He loses his temper. He deliberately leaves Timnah without his wife. He never gives glory to God one time in this chapter for the spirit's empowerment in his life. Never says, never acknowledges God. Never says, thank you, God. Never says, Lord, I praise you for your power in my life, never says it. From his perspective, this is only becoming a personal grudge match now between him and the Philistines, rather than cooperating with the Lord and delivering Israel. He's Samson is acting more like a spoiled brat than he is a judge of Israel at this point. Let me ask you this, with that in mind, how do you view, how do you view your life? How do you see your life? We'll pick up chapter 15 next week, but how do you see your life? Is it all about your feelings? Is it all about your desires? Is it all about your way? That's what Samson was doing here in this chapter. Are you guided by what you see with your eyes physically? We saw that John Piper video this morning, Seeing and Savoring Christ. It's not about what we see physically with our eyes, but about what we behold when we see, when we see Christ, the eyes of our heart, right, Ephesians? We see with the eyes of our heart. But are you guided only by what you see with your eyes? Are you controlled by your emotions? Do you throw temper tantrums if you don't get your way? 
Is your spiritual maturity on display for all to see? And that, if that's the case, it's time to reevaluate. It's time to reevaluate your life. Why are we here? What is the purpose of our being here? Why was Samson there? To do God's will, to, to carry out his mission. But so far, he's doing whatever he wants to do. The Lord is working with him, but he's not cooperating. We're here to follow the Lord. We're not here to follow our own personal agenda. We're here to follow him and his will. We can only do that in, in one way, right? The strength of the Holy Spirit. And we, we need to acknowledge that as well. We can't do it in ourselves. We can never do it in ourselves. So if you've gotten sidetracked, and maybe you've gotten sidetracked tonight from God's mission, for, from his, for his purpose for your life. Maybe you've gotten sidetracked through a series of events. And maybe all of us have gotten sidetracked to some degree. And tonight, we need to repent of that. We need to yield to the Spirit's control and acknowledge his work in our life and comply with him, cooperate with what he's doing. Let tonight be the night that, once again, we line up with the purposes of God for our life. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we do thank you for your word tonight, for Samson being an example to us, of many, in many ways a wrong example, but we pray we'll take it as a warning to ourselves that we should comply with your spirit, we should cooperate with the spirit of God, walk and fall in line with his purposes, uh, looking to do the things of the Lord, the will of the Lord, looking to be compliant with him, looking to be consecrated to him all the days of our life. We pray we'd be that, such people in our church. We pray those be those who would um, commit ourselves to you fully and completely to follow your will. And we just pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.